0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. I really want to invite you today to take a comprehensive look at the forensics of 9 11. It is the week of 9 11, 2012. It's been 11 years since this horrible event. Back in 2004, I did a beautiful interview with Sister Chang Kong, Thich Nhat right hand. Really, you should listen to that interview. It's absolutely beautiful. It's called The Practice of Peace on how we come to terms with and deal with the spiritual side of what happened. And a few years ago, we invited Dr. Judy Wood, the author of a book that took 10 years to acquire the knowledge to produce. Called Where Did the Towers Go? Evidence of Directed Free Energy Technology on 9 11. And at the time I interviewed Dr. Wood, I had not had a chance to read this book. It was not out yet. And I was very new at understanding a good part of the forensics of what happened on that day. There's been so much that has been said and so many theories about the forensics of the buildings. And there's been a lot of infighting over the years in the truth movement groups, fighting over details. Dr. Judy Wood is probably one of the most courageous women on the planet, in my view. I have finally read the first 12 chapters of Where Did the Towers Go? And I have to tell you that even if only one piece of the first 12 chapters is correct. What we understand about the forensics of 9-11 is completely erroneous. It says that Martin Luther King once said that a time comes when silence is betrayal. And it's very apropos that statement because we have arrived at the time where we must fully look and listen and get into the devil and the light in the details with respect to this event What's beautiful about our guest, who has gone through enormous victimization, has been very disenfranchised, who has been attacked 24 hours a day for the last 11 years. She's been called everything from a witch to a fraud to insane, you name it. But I've never seen anything so methodical. She reminds me of a modern-day Columbo. My bias of this interview is that no matter what you think, no matter what you've been told, no matter what you believe, you need to pick up Dr. Judy Wood's book, Where Did the Towers Go?, and read it. Just read it if only one thing is true in there. One, the entire story that we've been told about 9-11 falls apart completely. She is the Columbo of the modern day, and there is no way that this master who has figured out this event forensically, is going to be deceived. Now, I want to share something with you about my mother, Joanne. She had Alzheimer's, and one of the things that the doctors told us was that she would remember earlier memories, memories that had high-level emotion that were synapsed into her recorded memory, that she would remember anything that was very emotional. But that basic day-to-day events and facts of the day, anything that was not emotional, she would not remember it. And it was very, very true what we were told. What we know about fMRI and the brain today, we know that the event of 9-11, the shock, the violence, the tragedy, the emotion associated with death and destruction is all locked into our memories and imprinted there. And when you have an emotional event, whatever is told to you during that emotional event is recorded with it as if its own symphony. You and I have to deal with the fact that we have a record of this event that is tied in emotionally and we have a story that's attached to the emotionality of the event and that we have an automatic built-in bias toward it that prevents us from looking and seeing, that prevents us from looking at and using language that is not part of the official story. So I want you to know that we are programmed not to deal with this. We're programmed to resist any other new knowledge and information and language that does not fit what we have been programmed on that day. That includes all the news stations that said their official story over and over and over again. Let me tell you about Dr. Judy Wood. She's a remarkable woman. First of all, she's a former professor of mechanical engineering with research interests in experimental stress analysis, structural mechanics, optical methods, deformation analysis, characterization of biomaterials and composite materials. She's a member of the Society for Experimental Mechanics called SEM, and she co-founded SEM's biological systems and materials division. She served on the SEM Composite Materials Technical Division and she received her B.S. in Civil Engineering in 1981 and in Structural Engineering and an M.S. in in Engineering Mechanics, that is, Applied Physics, in 1983. And she has her Ph.D. in Materials Engineering Science in 1992. Where Did the Towers Go is the most comprehensive forensic analysis of what has happened. Be prepared to be shocked. Be prepared to hear things you haven't heard before. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Dr. Judy Wood to It's Rainmaking Time. Good morning. Good morning.
1: And thank you so much for rolling out the uh, red carpet.
0: I really think you deserve a red carpet. And the real crime of what has happened, aside from the original body of events, is that in a way, your lone voice in a sea of confusion, misinformation, distortion, hysteria, projection, And I would bet that most people do not want to know what happened at a forensic level on that day. They don't want to know. But for those who do, I have invited you back to the show because I'm 12 chapters into your book and it is clear that if one, and I mean only one piece of it is true, the entire story falls apart about what happened on that day. So I'd like to invite you to share a little bit about what is biomimicry and moiré interferometry. Biomimicry
1: is looking at biological designs and coming up with an engineering design using that knowledge. You know, nature did a pretty good job of designing various things. And if you look at a tree, a structure of a tree, it's rings within rings and that structure is phenomenal. That tree can swing in the, in the breeze bend way over when it needs to, you know, with a strong wind. And that is what inspired the design of the Twin Towers. 110 stories sticking way up there in the sky, it's going to get a lot of heavy winds. And it was designed like a tube within a tube, mimicking the structure of, a, of tall trees, and was designed to sway in the breeze.
0: So the Moray interferometry is what?
1: You can do it geometrically or through um, light waves interfering two coherent beams of light and you get walls of constructive and destructive interference. And from that, you can measure things, um, properties of materials on surfaces. And so using these various tools, I've learned to understand materials that I've never seen before.
0: How interesting. What is photomechanics? I know we should know what that is just by the mere word of it.
1: Using optical methods to uh, apply to mechanics problems to interrogate, for example, material properties.
0: Give an example if you could, because these are applications that you've used as part of your analysis and your investigation.
1: Well, not, not necessarily. That That's in the conventional sense, but what I've learned from that is in using optical methods. uh I'm very familiar with finding material properties in images and using, you know, optical methods and image analysis to interrogate what's going on, but also uh, being familiar with interference. And what I saw on 9-11, well, first of all, that day, you know, made no sense. It really struck me that why were other people falling into the story? This building obviously turned to powder in midair.
0: Can you just explain one thing? I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I didn't know what you meant when you said interrogate what's going on. What does that mean? Oh, just
1: look at it, investigate, explore, uh, study, focus on. Okay. Okay. Just determine, just really um, take apart every single detail of it down to pretty fine levels of, you know, deformation analysis. And so I'm, I'm very familiar with, you know, structural properties and what things do and what causes them to do these things. And I'd never seen... Anything like what I saw in 9-11, building, turning to dust in midair, I, except for one thing. alka are tablets, you know, you, they're a rigid object when they're dry. You put it, you change their environment, you put them in water, they effervesce and dissolve. Well, these steel beams falling through the air on 9-11 looked like the same thing. Their steel was a rigid object, but then its environment changed and it effervesced and dissolved.
0: I want to go back, if you don't mind. I just want to review a couple of the premises with you. Make sure we're on the same page. And-
1: well, I could start out and say, you know, for uh, beginners who haven't encountered this before, to realize that the buildings did not burn up, nor did they slam to the ground. But they turned into dust in midair. And we know that because if they had slammed to the ground, there'd be a big pile of stuff left over.
0: Wasn't there 1 million tons of building material in that building?
1: And just the two towers alone. And it wasn't just two towers. It was four towers, but seven buildings altogether that were destroyed that day. There's the two towers, WTC1, WTC2. And then there is the smaller tower, WTC3, 22 stories. WTC7 is 47 stories. And Then WTC 4, half of it went missing. WTC 5 had cylindrical holes cut out of it. WTC 6, the center cylindrical portion, about 50% of the building went missing. So there's this bizarre, you know, void of material that we saw. And it was only buildings with a WTC prefix, but all seven of them were destroyed that day.
0: The buildings with the WTC prefix, you assert, were not destroyed by explosives of any kind, not TNT, not C4, not RDX, not thermite, not thermate, or nanothermate. correct?
1: That's correct, but you don't start with the answer. Okay. Part of the problem solving is to start with what happened, and that is a key feature here. As soon as you're fed the answer, you you go cherry-picking evidence to support your answer. But what happens if it's the wrong answer? You can't get there from, you can't get to the the truth from there.
0: Can I ask you how you were able to not cherry pick the answer and how did you stay neutral?
1: Because of my experimental expertise in looking at what is before me and looking at solving the first what, especially when you're, you know, the first engineering class that students take is statics, and I'm like a drill sergeant with requiring them to give the problem statement, what you're given in the problem, what you're looking for, how you're going about solving it. So you first have to define the problem, and that is the step that gets skipped here. Let's define the problem, what happened. So the the towers didn't burn up or slam to the ground, but turn into dust, and we know that because of the lack of debris, but also if they slammed to the ground, there'd be a seismic signal that would reflect that. That didn't happen. It was a small one, but nothing anywhere close to the, the size it should have been. And Building 7, it was essentially a non-seismic event. A 47-story building crashes to the ground and it isn't recorded on a seismic chart. And then if the building had slammed to the ground, lower Manhattan would have been flooded because the towers were built on bedrock 60 or 70 feet below the water table. They are built in the Hudson River with a dike around them, and the land was filled in around them. So if they'd slammed down, these these two 500,000-ton buildings had slammed down onto the dike, the bathtub, or slurry wall, it has various names, it for sure would have flooded Manhattan, all the subway tunnels, uh, and so forth. And that didn't happen. The Hudson River was kept out. Now, a couple of days after 9-11, they brought in earth-moving equipment, and the earth-moving equipment began to damage the wall. But five hundred thousand ton buildings slamming down didn't? Or did the you know, gets you to question if the buildings actually slammed to the ground. If they had, all this stuff would have happened. But if they turn into dust in midair, dust doesn't make a thud when it hits. So it all is consistent and supports that the buildings turn into dust in midair. They look like they turn into dust in midair, but were our eyes deceiving us? Well, all this other evidence confirms that they turn into dust in midair. Also, if they burned up, uh, you wouldn't have all this unburned paper floating all over the place. They turned into dust and then paper floated free. That was an interesting quirk of this. It just taking in the observations of what happened. And it's probably pretty frustrating for a lot of people because they've been trained to jump to the answer. But again, as soon as you jump to the answer, you're making assumptions. You're making assumptions about what the problem is that you're solving. And by making those assumptions, you're, you're solving a fictitious problem, not the real problem. So that's why it's so important to lay out what the problem is that you're solving. So as, as I like to say, you keep looking at the, the evidence, and it'll tell you what happened. And you look at it long enough.
0: Just like any crime scene would inform the right investigators.
1: Right, right. And you, and you look at it, and it just it keeps uh, speaking to you. And I wrote my favorite quote in my book. It says, if you listen to the evidence carefully enough, it will speak to you and tell you exactly what happened. If you don't know what happened, keep listening to the evidence until you do. The evidence always tells the truth. The key is not to allow yourself to be distracted away from seeing what the evidence is telling you.
0: There's so much evidence. Just in the first 12 chapters, I have to tell you, I took eight pages of notes here. The National Institute of Standards, or NIST, didn't analyze what happened to WTC. They offered a probable collapse sequence, you say, which you challenged. It's a hypothetical problem. Right?
1: Yeah, they're solving the hypothetical problem, not the real problem.
0: You said that their collapse sequence violated the law of physics. Can you explain that? When
1: I told them about this, I laid out some examples like the South Tower, the top 35 or so stories start to tip over. And if you're standing on the edge of a cliff and you start to tip over, you, you know, when you get past the tipping point, you're goner. You're going over. You can't pull yourself back unless you're, you know, a gymnast and distort your body in various ways. But uh, still, your, your center of gravity, once it's gone over, it's gone. But that tower seemed to, the top part seemed to stop tipping and maybe tip back a little bit and then turn into dust. And it appears to violate the laws of physics unless you realize, you know, the conservation of angular momentum. But it turns out it does obey the conservation of momentum, but not as a single unit. As a unit, you can't have something stop tipping and then disappear. But if the building, if that unit had turned to to little microscopic specks of dust, each of those could have kept rotating, but not the whole thing as a unit.
0: So where did the dust come from?
1: The material. There's uh, various pictures that show chunks of steel drifting down. I think um, page 139, there's a particular one. You you look at the steel that's falling. And it's trailing this opaque dust like Alka-Seltzer, but thicker than Alka-Seltzer does, just this opaque wall of dust behind it. Now, ask yourself, if that had been tossed off of the top floor, you know, Windows of the World Restaurant has bags of flour there. Okay, maybe somebody dumped flour all over the thing and then chucked it out the window. As it's falling, how much dress is it going to be trailing? Can you see it trailing opaque dust all the way to the ground? No. Well, how about if you you strap bags of, of flour to it? You know, if you start thinking about it, that beam cannot eject enough dust to cause that opaque trail of dust behind it unless the steel itself is turning to dust.
0: So 110 stories are destroyed in roughly 10 seconds?
1: Well, not necessarily all of 110. You know, maybe all but the the bottom few stories. And when I looked at the seismic signal, it's equivalent to maybe all but the bottom 16 or 20 stories. If the the bottom 16 stories remained and the rest of it completely turned to dust for the South Tower, and you drop that bottom 16 stories, like a 16-story building of that footprint size, you would get the seismic signal that was recorded. And if you start looking around, adjacent buildings don't have what I call stab wounds. There's no... Uh, big spears of steel that went through any of the buildings, really above like the 18th floor.
0: We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Did you know that approximately 65,000 of the 70,000 chemicals that have been dumped into the environment are considered to be highly toxic? That we are ingesting those toxins through the air, the water, and the food supply? And that no matter how much you eat organic food and drink the best, purest water, we all have to detoxify from these chemicals that we're being bombarded with. We're also being bombarded with something invisible. The radiation fallout from Fukushima, one of the worst man-made environmental disasters humanity has seen since Chernobyl. In combination with the BP oil spill, the fact is that we have to detoxify our bodies of toxins and of the radiation. But how do you do that? You do that with rock-powdered zeolite. Zeolite is the most effective mineral you can take to detoxify your body. Zeolite has been used to treat Chernobyl victims... The land in agriculture, it's been very effective. It's also given to animals to detoxify as well. If you are interested in establishing a prevention program and detoxifying your body, go to etszeolite.com or call Hank Heister at 818 707 0468 and if you tell him it's rainmaking time you will get free shipping for the product that you order call Hank Heister at 818 707 0468 and order your zeal light today and back to the show in your analysis on page 5 you talk about how these stories were 12 feet apart and what's between them would be destroyed too the way the original story is telling us that it would be destroyed in like a fraction of a second. That it would take normally ninety-seven seconds, not counting the air resistance for a building of one hundred and ten well, stories, for, right? For it
1: to pancake down, if, if right. you know one floor has to pancake to the next one, and if it pulverizes itself, but just has just enough energy to get the next floor to drop, and then that pulverizes itself, you, you're having to restart the motion all over again because the the you know each floor is dustified. I bring in a new word here, dustification. It's not in our, our dictionary yet, but it needs to be. A new process requires a new term to describe it. We've never seen a building turn to dust before. And if you start using a term for a known, a known phenomenon, you're fixing to mess up because if this is an unknown phenomenon. You, you can't uh, you're you're identifying it with a bias.
0: So our language is critical in being able to identify what's going on.
1: Right. So I come up with these new terms. Like, for example, these fumes coming out of the ground. If somebody says it's smoke, they're already assuming fire to be the cause. I'm rigorous about calling it fumes because fumes can be chemical fumes, you know, dust, you know, anything. It's a a catch-all phrase.
0: You know, I guess to the average person, you know, when they hear fumes, they think from fire. They just associate it.
1: Right. But I'm not saying uh, smoke and, you know, it's it's hazy uh, something. You don't know quite what it is. A lot of people try to use the term vaporized. The building was vaporized. That is incorrect because that is a process that implies high heat. And high heat is not established. matter of fact, it's contradicted. If you have all this unburned paper floating around, how can this be a high heat process?
0: Maybe that paper was just in specific areas and it wasn't where things were falling.
1: Oh, you see it all over the place, coming out all directions. If for for some reason, the paper is, you know, floating free continually for like the hour beforehand too.
0: When you say that the pancake theory is a problem because there's no accumulation of floors and there's pulverization, not pancaking. Can you explain that?
1: Right. As you see the building coming down, if you see all this this dust and stuff shooting out, chapter one, the introduction chapter is, you know, first glance at it. And, it you know, I was already referring to pulverization, which is not necessarily correct, but for a first interpretation, it might, it, it's, it's a lot closer. It looks like the material ground up and, you know, disintegrated. And just, you know, what you see on that day. Well, if it's, if it's ground up, on the way down, it can't be pushing the building down. And if yeah. it's over on uh, you know, Fulton Street or whatever, a few blocks over, uh, how can it be pushing the building down? It's
0: yeah. wafted away. How about if it's pulverized or if it's been micronized, right? Doesn't it still have weight?
1: It has a whole lot more air resistance per mass, and it tends to stay aloft. Try uh, throwing a bag of flour. You know, th- Get a handful of flour, not um, the bag itself, but scoop a handful of flour out and see how far you can throw it. And then get some rocks and see how far you can throw them of you know, okay. the same mass. It's that the air resistance will keep that dust from, from falling at free-fall speed. The air resistance is substantial.
0: And define free-fall for the public, will you?
1: Free-fall in a vacuum is defined by you know the constant of gravity, uh, the gravitational forces. If you drop you know, a rock from a high place or a feather... And assuming there's no atmospheric uh, you know, resistance, they're going to fall at the same speed. But as soon as you get air resistance in there, it's going to slow it down. It'll slow down the feather a whole lot more than it'll slow down the rock.
0: So if a billiard ball hits the ground, let's say from the top of World Trade Center 1 or 2, or North or South Tower, is it true that it would come down to the ground in 9.22 seconds? No,
1: because we have very... Air resistance. If you have a, you know, everything's in a vacuum and you have no air resistance, then it would be 9.22 seconds.
0: Okay. But
1: as soon as you add air resistance in there, now the billiard ball isn't going to get slowed down nearly as much as a feather or dust, powder. Interesting. You know, you get a bag of flour and you throw it up in the air, it it fills the air because it's just, you know, it's going to be staying aloft a lot longer.
0: You say that the kinetic energy can't be spent in both pancaking and pulverizing at the same time. You can't have pulverization in a downward force. That's what you're explaining, right?
1: Right. If you're going to slam one floor against the other and bust it up, the other floor has got to be rigid, nor for you to slam something against it. Or else it's acting like a shock absorber if it's moving. So the if you're going to, let's say, pancake floor 110 onto floor 109, the 109th floor better be rigid or else you're not going to be able to bust up the 110th floor when you slam it to it. And we saw the building turning to dust all the way down. So if you're going to say that it's it's pulverizing itself, you have to use resistance to pulverize it. It needs to have a, a, a solid foundation to slam something against. It, do, it, it can't be doing that in midair under normal physics circumstances if you're going to mash something. And so if it's Completely, you know, kinetic energy, like free fall of a, of a ball, and you can't have resistance to it.
0: <laughs> so if the floors were to pancake, is it true that it would take 100 seconds, like a minute and 40 seconds, but not the free fall collapse rate of 10 seconds?
1: It would take at least that. that that's just to give you a ballpark idea of just the timing itself. There isn't enough energy to do all this, but pretending there was, just to drop the 110th floor to the 109th floor, and it turns the dust, but it knocks the 109th floor loose, and it falls to the 108th floor, turns the dust, and knocks that one loose. That kind of uh, relay race, <laughs> you know, baton passing, is going to take 100 seconds. But think about how fast that is. How fast can you clap your hands? How many times? You know, this is 110. Can you do that in 10 seconds?
0: No. In fact, I tried that, and you're in my first interview. And it was not easy. It was impossible.
1: There actually is somebody who can do that, but they do some trickery with different, you know, rocking their hands or whatever. That's the Guinness Book World Record holder. <laughs> 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 but but it, it's a, some trickery. It's not really normal clap, 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 clap. And you, you, just, you just can't go that fast. There's uh, quite a few other issues with it. If, if you are pancaking these floors down and not busting them up, then where are they? They should be stacked up there at the bottom. You know, they're not there. There's there's a picture I have of an ambulance parked in front of Tower 1, but there's no Tower 1 there. It's all ground level. But the ambulance is there. It's it's not clobbered or anything. It's, it's just covered with dust.
0: What do you mean by the wave of collapse is faster than the free-fall speed?
1: That if you uh, dropped a, a bowling ball at the, off the roof at the same time the roof started descending towards the ground, right? it appears that the roof hits the ground before that, that – Bowling ball would.
0: What does that mean to us?
1: The the building was destroyed faster than it could fall.
0: Okay, I get it. It went
1: away faster than it could fall. Another way of looking at this, and I talk about the seismic chart. The seismic signal showed the ground shook for only eight seconds. Now figure that one out. If you're dropping, if it takes a nine and a half seconds for a bowling ball off the roof to hit the ground. Why is the ground only shake for eight seconds? It should be like this jackhammer, bum, 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 all the way down if it was a progressive collapse or pancaking. Wow. But the I- ground only shook for eight seconds.
0: I am sure that NIST doesn't like you very much. <laughs> well, they their contractors. Yes.
1: The contractors are the ones to, who were assigned to come up with the uh, scenario.
0: Now, you filed a quit-em complaint, didn't you? Yes, I first brought
1: this to the attention of NIST, uh, you know, I brought it to a government agency that something's wrong with the report. I, I put forth a um, request for corrections, and in doing so, I became a whistleblower, and that qualified me to file a federal tam case, which is a whistleblower case. You you don't sue the government. You can you can sue the contractors who defrauded the American people. And these were people were paid for by tax money, our tax dollars.
0: You're very brave. Your student was murdered in cold blood when?
1: 2006. But I prefer to leave that out of it because uh, this is a case about the evidence, not about martyrdom. I I understand.
0: (laughs) How can pulverized material contribute to momentum? And why is that an important question? Or is it important? Well, if,
1: if the building's ground up and floating, it can't be pushing the building down. It's it's sort of like been removed from the system of weight. A lot of people are led to believe that you have this big jackhammer pushing the building down. Well, it can't be pushing down if it's if it's wafted away, if it's been shot out to the sides or whatever it's done, you know, the effervescing material. It's like your Alka-Seltzer tablet. If it's effervesced and there's only a little chip quarter of it left I mean that's that's not much material how can it, that be used to push the rest of the building down
0: how come these anomalies are not more clear to more people who have been examining the forensics of this day
1: who's been examining the, the forensics other than me
0: I've never seen anybody examine it at your level but there's architects and this for 9/11 there's all these different entities out there that are claiming to have examined this event
1: this becomes a very interesting issue. And it comes to how our educational system teaches people to solve problems. People are taught to start with the answer and work backwards. You know, multiple choice testing, the flashcards memorization. They're not taught to understand the problem from the beginning, to to define the problem and then solve the problem. The first thing you heard out of the, you know, the thermite promoters is that, you know, it was thermite. What was thermite? It was. What was it? They never defined it. They never defined the connection. What does thermite have to do with what happened to buildings? It takes first defining what the problem is. And so it has to do with problem solving skills. But there's, there's three things I've found that prevent people from seeing what happened. What, what happened is just it's, it's blatant right in front of your eyes. You look at the cover of the book and you see once you, you get past your biases, you see the buildings frothing up into dust. But the, the three things are problem-solving skills, you know, starting with the, the end and working backwards, cherry-picking the data that supports the predetermined issue. And the second thing is groupthink. You know, people tend not to want to wander from the herd. And if the herd gets established, then people feel compelled to join on board with that, even if it's the wrong answer. And they get ridiculed if they're not you know, in lockstep with it. And the third thing is the implications of this. This is horrendous. And you start thinking about the fact that the building was turned to dust in midair. That means a technology that can turn buildings to dust in midair exists.
0: Why do people get hysterical about the prospect of this? In other words, why is it so easy for people to dismiss that this type of free energy technology exists? Well,
1: it's it's one of these three things or all of them or any combination of them. And these are, you know, walls that prevent people from from getting there. And they're very effective in how people have been trained to function, which is why here we are 11 years. The truth is known. It isn't like, well, we'll never know the truth. No, the truth is known. But why don't people find it? Because they're satisfied with hanging on to groupthink or, you know, or worried about uh, the implications. And they don't want this to be true. So they deny that it
0: exists. And don't you also think that sometimes the arguments surrounding what happened, it's like a false fight. It's not even a fight worthy of happening because even if only the question is asked, why did the top of the building turn to dust? If only that were addressed or why did cars explode seven blocks away? Why were 1400 cars destroyed? Like some of these things are so weird and has nothing to do with with the official story, you've got to say something else was going on that day. We've got to examine it.
1: There's there's also a concerted effort to to maintain a cover up, and once you you have a, a society of people trained for with this uh, weakness, they can easily be derailed into thinking it's infighting. You know, they're directed to reject anything that that uh, Dr. Wood has to say. Or they're even encouraged to refer to me as, as Judy, you know, little Judy, uh, as though that will dismiss anything that I have to say. Why is it so important to dismiss what I have to say? And and then they call it infighting. Well, you know, infighting requires there to be you know different sides fighting or different issues fighting. And if it's only one fighting the other, that's called character assassination. And there's a tremendous amount of that. And folks, you know, I don't engage with these people, but I'm accused of infighting. Why is presenting evidence? fighting.
0: That's a good question. And the other thing is, don't you find on your path that one of the ways to divert public attention from seeing something or understanding something is to keep reframing something in a way that takes them in a totally different direction? So the framing of the questions, the framing of the dialogue is very important for diverting public attention.
1: Right, right, exactly. And, and, and the base of it is the problem-solving skills, getting things in reverse order. The first thing I heard from Stephen Jones was, uh, you know, it was thermite. Uh, you know, and how they get there? How'd that get there? Who put that there? You know, they're already getting into the who and the and the how rather than the what. And as though the what gets assumed as soon as you bring out the the who. And even on on day one, we're told about this this guy named Bin Laden and Al Qaeda. And all this stuff before the what was determined. And that gets people to assume the what. You know, it's
0: like it, predictive programming, really.
1: Yes. And it's also, it feeds on itself. Uh, like you bring up the toasted cars. For the longest while, You know, I was silenced from any uh, truth or movement activity. But then when, when they can't hold it back any longer and the toasted cars are brought up by people in the audience, it's immediately explained away as, oh, thermite trickled on the cars or, or something like that.
0: You have firefighters actually saying cars were exploding onto themselves, literally combusting.
1: Right. There's there's uh, firefighters who, you know, every, as soon as the towers went poof, that's my term for turning to dust, uh, that actually came from a, um, a reporter who said he looked up and the building poofed out. <laughs> uh, anyway, so, they, they, you know, they go to their hiding places and then everything's black. And this, this one firefighter, Patrick Connolly, comes out of, he tried to get in the basement of Tower 7, then decided it wasn't safe in there and went out and it was pitch black. But then he said, Thank goodness, these cars started lighting up as he passed him. Then he could see where he was going. <laughs> a, another uh, you know, first responder had her, her uh, jacket catch on fire. It's supposed to be a turnout coat. She said they should call it a burnout coat. It, she was like a human flashlight. She didn't describe being burned.
0: It's the strangest thing. I think between the 1,400 cars, firefighters and first responders being lifted, literally blown 30 feet or picked up and moved, there's a lot of strange anomalies. But is it okay if we get to the jumpers? It's the most disturbing thing. uh,
1: First of all, flip to page 191 if you can. Okay. This is an elevation map of what was left with a silhouette of the buildings that should have been there and what went missing. And in the base of Building 3, there's this little hump left, a couple of stories in the south edge of it. People survived there. But the most amazing thing is the base of this 110-story building, this little hump at the bottom, what remained of Stairwell B. And all 14 people who survived in that walked out on their own steam. Wow. They looked up and saw a blue sky. There's the the quote by Jay Jonas. I looked and said, guys, there used to be 106 floors above us, and now I'm seeing sunshine. There's nothing above us. That big building doesn't exist. He later says, these were the biggest office buildings in the world, and I didn't see one desk, one chair, one phone, nothing.
0: We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. No matter what the state of the economy is, there will always be time-honored traditions and special events. The Sterling Hut has been in business since 2008, offering a wide range of fantastic sterling silver products, including finely crafted mint julep cups, personalized baby shower gifts, photo albums, exquisite jewelry boxes and awards, and so much more. The Sterling Hut is an authorized Silver Star international reseller of fine silver products and anniversary gifts. The business is owned by Jewel and Bob Howard. If you would be interested in buying someone a gift of pure sterling silver or sterling plated silver, you can call 1-888-819-1009. Get a 15% discount by going to the Sterling Hut, the Sterling S T E R L I N G hut h u t dot com and saying it's rainmaking time. They will honor a fifteen percent discount for you. Beautiful sterling silver gifts for all of life's occasions, manufactured in Italy and handcrafted by skilled artisans. They can also be engraved in sterling picture frames, oval and rectangular silver trays, champagne ice buckets, silver goblets. Coffee and tea service, coffee pots, silver mugs, candelabras, and silver jewelry unrivaled in design and style. Go to the Sterling Hut at sterlinghut.com and back to the show. Now, did you interview all these people or were these firefighters and first responders or were these interviews that you saw?
1: The, this is from their um, debriefing right afterwards. They go through uh, each one of them to say what they, they saw. And that's, that's the normal thing after... You know, any kind of event, just to put it down in record, who saw what, when, how. And so these are these, these folks were interviewed. There's redacted parts of the um, testimony, but this is what wasn't redacted.
0: And where would one find this?
1: I've got a reference links to it in the book. Everything in the book is, is referenced, so That's people great. can look it up for themselves. I also did interview some who were there. One fellow who worked in the North Tower, 27th floor, you know, he decided he wasn't going to get work done for the day. It was no big deal. You know, something happened up above. He didn't know what it was, but somebody told him it was an airplane crash, and he just kind of took their word for it. But, you know, not that he didn't really seem like it, but he said, you know, he wasn't going to get work done. So he grabbed his stuff and was heading home. He'd take the ferry. And as he walked past Tower 2, you know, he could see that there's some flames coming out of it or smoke or whatever he thought. And um, he looked like it was under control, but it was going to be mayhem there for the rest of the day. So he got down to the ferry. He got down to the ferry terminal, and and they're waiting for the ferry. And some idiot, they thought he was an idiot, uh, came up yelling that uh, the South Tower just collapsed. And they all thought he was an idiot. (laughs) because they just walked past the building and the building was in good health and they didn't feel it hit the ground. They didn't hear it hit the ground. So this must be an idiot, right? They got on the ferry and the ferry got out in the middle of the Hudson so they could see past the buildings they were at the base of and they saw there was only one tower left and were shocked. There's various issues like that that are confirmation from various sources of, of what was going on. But there's, you know, other witnesses, too, that I protect the identity of uh, for obvious reasons, who've made comments here and there, too, but for uh, validation. But you mentioned about the jumpers. Yes. The buildings appeared to be disintegrating through that whole hour before their final demise. And I've got some information to that effect as well.
0: Can you share with the audience what are the jumpers?
1: They're referred to as jumpers, and few realize how many there were. There's first responder testimony, and I really feel for those firefighters because they're trained to save lives. They're in that business to save lives. That's what their desire is. And here they could do nothing. And I think that feeling helpless is the worst human emotion and the helplessness they must have felt watching these people come out of the building. And several of them commented that it was like three or four per minute out of each face of the building.
0: I think one of them described it as one jumper every five seconds.
1: Yeah, there's various estimations. And Going by the estimation of, let's take three per minute out of each side.
0: And that's people jumping out of the building.
1: They said they're jumping. I prefer to think of them as just coming out of the building. Okay. Either their, their own choice or otherwise. But if there's three per minute times four sides, that's 12 per minute. And that building stood for 100 minutes. So that's 1,200 people.
0: Oh, my God.
1: And then there's 343 firefighters who didn't come out of the building who were you know, squashed in it. That they identified. So the uh, total number of people identified by DNA or whatnot from the pieces they found around the perimeter was just under 1,600. And if you add that 1,200 plus the 343 firefighters, you get 1,543. That's just about accounts for the ones who came out of the building before the building's demise. In other words, the ones who were still in the building. There's nothing left to identify. But looking at these pictures, it's, it, it's very difficult because, you you know, you don't want to see it. You don't want to feel it. it, that helpless feeling you get when you look at it. But I realized, looking at this one particular picture, that these people are communicating with us, telling us their last thoughts. They want us to hear them. And I felt like I made them a promise that I would tell their story. And once I made that promise, then I could look at the pictures I felt a responsibility to them. And there's this one particular one from the 105th floor hanging from the outside of the building, taking his pants off. You look and you see, you know, is he really doing that? Well, you look at some other ones hanging out of the building. They already have their pants off or their shirts off. This guy already has his shirt off. And you start looking at the logic behind this. If it's fire, clothing protects you from fire. You know, firefighters do not fight fires in the nude. Clothing is a protective layer.
0: What if so they just felt too hot?
1: You'll go ahead and sweat inside your clothes. You, you know, you're also you're hanging outside the building on the upwind side at the 105th floor. There's a pretty stiff breeze up there. You know, people go up on top of the roof. They have their windbreakers on even in the middle of the summer. It's cold up there and all that breeze. So it isn't a case of of overheating, and that isn't a reason for taking off your. You know, firefighters wouldn't. Oh, I'm hot, so I take off my fire jacket. Clothing is a protective layer. And you say, okay, they're hanging out of the building because there's smoke in there. Well, you don't see any smoke, but even if there is, that doesn't warrant taking the pants off outside the building, hanging by one hand and one foot. If you had some peculiar reason you want to take your pants off, you, you hold your breath, step inside, take the pants off, step back outside. You don't need to take your pants off outside because of smoke.
0: What is your take on this?
1: If I were there and I thought there was a fire, first thing I'd do is head to the restrooms and get myself soaked with water and get my extra clothes in my desk drawer, soak with, with water so I could wrap around my head and bolt for the staircase. But I'd be wet. If the fire sprinklers kicked on, you'd be wet. If they didn't kick on, it was hot, you'd be sweating and you'd be wet. So there's a good chance that these people were wet. Now, is there a reason why being wet is better to uh, take off your clothes?
0: I could not comprehend that at all.
1: Or to get outside the building. Well, if you, if you think of energy fields, like this is an analogy. A microwave, if you put a wet paper towel in your microwave, it cooks. If you put a dry paper towel in your microwave, it doesn't cook. put chicken on a paper plate, the, pa- the chicken cooks, the paper plate doesn't.
0: So the water is conductive.
1: Because the water molecules get excited from the microwave energy that that they vibrate and heat up. And it turns out they have this uh, gizmo they use for crowd control, active denial system, where they microwave a a crowd of protesters and make them disperse because they feel like they're burning up. And it's stated that if your, your clothing is wet, it's tons worse. It's, you know, hundreds of times worse. Because then your skin is really frying. Dry is better. So, if these people had wet clothing and there's some sort of energy field in effect there that isn't an effect outside the building as much, that's a reason for hanging outside the building, but also a reason for taking off clothing that is likely wet. The behavior is consistent with that. Okay. It's not consistent with smoke and fire you know, taking their clothes off and hanging by a hand and a foot outside, taking the clothes off
0: outside the building. It is strange. It is very strange behavior.
1: And also the of the firefighters, you know, many of them have been on the force for 20 years. They have never seen more than one person in their life jump out of a building that was on fire. That's amazing. It's not a behavior that they've seen before. There's something else going on there. And also what you can think of, too, is it, it may not be their choice. If you go into your uh, kitchen and turn on your, your stove burner and it's, and it's red hot and you put your hand on it, you don't think about it. Your hand flies off of there. You don't stop and think, should I remove my hand? It's a reflex that your hand just runs from it. And like with this microwaving crowds, the crowd disperses. They just they just don't stay there. It just makes them disperse because, you you know, you just out of reflex have to get away from it, whatever it is and you think about that and you see some of these people who look bewildered like how did i get here as you know on the way down like this one guy is flapping his wings like his arms like he's he's uh trying to fly like, like whoa how did i get here you know i just
0: <laughs> we're laughing but it's terrible
1: that is a coping mechanism that we all do like the last part of chapter 3 the jumper chapter there's uh, the last testimony that ends with yes i'm done that one I giggle every time I read it. It's just so horrendous. I'll go ahead and read it here, see if I can hold a straight face. Uh, because it's so extreme, that's what our reaction is. Because going up West Street, there, uh, there were other companies, but we were distracted. There were just bodies all over the place and parts. It was just clothes and flesh. I remember getting out of the rig and, stepped, and stepping like I was stepping. I thought it was stepping in dog manure. It was bodies. Yes, I'm done. Just so extreme, and you think of that and how, how it must have been to be there. It's just so weird.
0: it's grotesque, absolutely grotesque. Did you ever talk to the producer of the Falling Man documentary?
1: No, I didn't, but uh, they, they did an excellent job of showing truth, you know, showing real people and what they were saying, and I, I really felt for the father of the falling man.
0: right, because of his wife, Elaine.
1: No, no, that was uh, Jack, uh, I forgot his last name. Yeah, that that one was uh, another one that was quite interesting. He was talking with his wife, who was on the, I forgot what floor, one of the top floors, and, you know, no problem, we're just going to be heading down the stairs, we'll be down in a while, and uh, she had some wet clothing she wrapped around her head, and you're going to be heading down the stairs, he said, okay, call me when you get to the bottom, and then a few stories later, she was out the window on the street it it made no sense to him either and i would i would uh, love to send him a copy of this book and let him know how valuable those comments were and it would give him peace i think because not knowing and understanding is is one thing but once you understand the building was turning to dust internally well before its final demise what was it doing to the people in there?
0: So would it be safe to say that the building inside was changing at a molecular level, and that also means the people inside were changing at a molecular level?
1: Yes, yes.
0: Or being impacted at a molecular level, at their level of their own body
1: yeah the, the, it there was some sort of like energy field that was affecting everything in that volume of space. Maybe some, some one foot square foot here is different than one square foot there, but, you know, it's a slightly different magnitude, but they're all, it's having the same kind of effect, similar.
0: So what do you think happened with Elaine and why at first she was going to walk down with this wet towel over her head and then X number of minutes later she's jumping out of the building?
1: I don't know if she even jumped out. Okay. It may have been that she was flown, you know, she flew out from some other source. Okay. There were people who also on their way down after they left the building, I won't presume jump, but after they left the building, they're like 100 feet from the building.
0: Yeah, that was bizarre. That doesn't even make any sense.
1: It, it doesn't make any sense until you start uh, entering into the possibilities as some kind of energy field.
0: Talk about that. Talk about the distance some of the bodies supposedly jumped. They couldn't have jumped.
1: Well, up to like 400 feet from the building. And there's no way that you can get that far, even at the world's record uh, standing broad jump effort. If you have no horizontal air resistance and and you're in free fall on the way down, so that means you're in the air a certain length of time. You can calculate how long, you know, the 9.22 seconds. If you're spending 9.22 seconds in the air going down, you're also coasting horizontally during that time. How far out could you possibly get? You know, if you if you launched yourself from the top of the building horizontally at the effort of a world record holder in the standing broad jump, you still wouldn't wouldn't get much more than 100 feet out.
0: How could anybody get more than five feet? Come on.
1: Oh, you get more than that. The horizontal distance you go can keep increasing as you coast outward
0: all right i understand that
1: okay so but but you know more than 100 feet uh not really and there were stories of uh things you know 400 feet away or more like down by the tunnel a rib cage
0: so basically whatever this force field was is the same force field that turned the building into dust it's the same force field that had people Appear to be jumping 400 feet or 100 feet away from the building. It's the same force field that had automobiles combust and blow up. It's- also,
1: there were there were people who were uh, coming apart on the way down. Air doesn't do that.
0: That's right. I think a firefighter said that one of yeah, the people. Yeah, he said I didn't just- need to
1: look out the window. Then I didn't need to see that. I didn't need to see that. And he just looked out for a few minutes. Yeah, he was looking out of the North Tower over Tower Three. And he saw this body come by the window and then he said he clipped the corner of the roof and then on the building below and then just turned into a cloud of red.
0: You know what? I don't think most of the people there that day, they're capable of reporting what they saw. Now it's what we make of it, right? That's it's-
1: what's so important about recording the, the thoughts you know, early on. And, and they're still trying to fit them into a normal world. Like uh, this one particular um, EMT floated down some stairs, and her way of explaining it is that she must have died, and God carried her down the stairs. Because how else could she have floated down the stairs? You know, there's there's a lot of stories like that. It, you know, people have different ways of rationalizing it because again, they're looking, they're starting with the answer, and then trying to fit things their data to the answers
0: What do you think of that firefighter Bertram where he was overlooking the Vista hotel and saw people vaporized right in front of his eyes what do you think of that
1: you know that's his interpretation what it means is something normal wasn't occurring there that's, that's how I came to read these is he's using the best descriptions he, as he can and and that something of, you know bizarre was happening that caused these these bodies to come apart. Just because he said vaporized does not mean the, bo- the bodies were cooked and evaporated. But it was that's his interpretation. Again, the same kind of thing goes on with you know people hearing explosions. Right. That doesn't mean that's evidence of a bomb. Bombs go boom, but not everything that goes boom is a bomb. And just because the firefighters heard explosion sounds or, or things going boom does not mean bombs were in the building. You put an egg in your microwave oven you know, a raw egg in a shell, Right. it'll go boom. Doesn't mean there's thermite in it or, you know, TNT. It means that you heard something go boom.
0: I have a question for you. Is it possible for there to have been free energy technology used on that day and there also be attendant bombs in different locations in these buildings?
1: Uh, you're jumping to the answers. <laughs> You gotta deal with what the evidence shows you. And what what I was just saying there yeah. is that just because somebody heard something go boom is not evidence of a bomb.
0: See that's profound because one associates one with being the other.
1: Right, and then that's promoted. Yeah. Again, that's that's jumping to the answer and then, you know, fitting fitting data to your answer rather than fitting data to what the the data is saying. You know, not fitting it to anything. And there's also uh evidence of if you know, firefighters Saying that that uh, their Scott packs were exploding at street level in the fire trucks, and Scott packs are the are the um, air tanks that the firefighters wear so they can breathe clean air when they go go into smoky environments right and they have a, a stash of these on the on the fire truck, and they were exploding at street level so you know they didn't put bombs in the fire trucks, did they no, so there's something that was doing something to that environment. You know, like I say with the seltzer analogy. Yes. The environment changed. Now, if you have something affecting the the uh, pressure vessel of these air tanks, weakening it, at some point, it's not going to be able to contain the pressure, and it's going to it's going to explode. It's like uh, finding something that that eats uh, rubber, and then get a rubber balloon and, and you know blow it up and set it on whatever you know the acid that eats. It's going to pop the balloon.
0: What does this mean then? That the cars are exploding, these oxygen tanks are blowing up? Uh- Something
1: is going on in the environment that causes this. Most of the effects were right there, you know, precisely within, you know, the, the footprint of the towers in a vertical amount of space. But there's some effects that affected surrounding things. If we start looking at the... the um, you know, patterns of this, you know, we have these, what I call toasted cars, not burnt cars. I call them toasted as in their toast, their history, something destroyed them. And I came up with that unique kind of term for it. It's still, it's not a foreign term, but unique for this. She just described this got toasted, that got toasted. So we don't have to evaluate how it got to that point. It use it sort of as a placeholder of, of, of a name that refers to whatever it was that happened to the car. So you don't have to determine what exactly happened, but just something that happened that we're going to call toasted as in it's, it's destroyed. You can't fix it. You have to get another one. You know, it's, it's toast. You get these toasty cars, right? And they're all over the place. Some are uh, in this parking lot where you have one right after the other, you know, it's just lighting up and you have a sea of unburned paper in between. So it isn't like hot things landing on them and causing them to, to go into flames. And you start thinking about why is it, and it's also West Broadway. It's the street that runs directly north. It goes north, south, north of the complex. It goes past Building 7 on up for like uh, five, four or five blocks. Every single car along there was toasted. The trees weren't toasted, nice green bushy leaves overhanging these vehicles. The signs weren't toasted, the street signs. Neither were the traffic lights. Just the vehicles. No buildings toasted. And you start to realize the cars are up on rubber tires. They're insulated. They're not grounded. If there's some sort of charge in the air, in the environment, that charge will build up in these cars faster than it can discharge it. Unlike like the street sign, same kind of material, uh, you know, the galvanized steel potted in the ground. That That thing is immediately grounded. So I think there's, there's, you know, that's just a pattern. And you notice how the base of the towers, it didn't go below ground. It was destroyed up to, you know, some of the leftover, I call them wheat checks, those outer sets of column prefab sets of three columns. Um, they're, they're sticking up from the ground there. So, you know, it's, it's consistent with that. Also, there's other patterns with the toasted cars where the front door is completely toasted, the back door looks like it's just had a brand new wax job and in pristine condition. Yeah, you know, if the door had been open you, and if it was fire inside, the fire would be lapping out around the the corner. Didn't happen. If the door is closed. You know why? Why is it it stopped abruptly at the edge of the front door and didn't travel to the back door? And also, the uh, lights on top of the car are not melted. The plastic police lights. So, uh, you know, you start wondering, okay, you have this um, rubber gasket, a type of insulator, not thermal insulator, but like electrical or magnetic insulator between the front and back door. You start noticing patterns like that, and especially the thing that really turned on the light bulb for me. One of my big aha moments was this circular spot in that car that was – you know, appeared in pristine condition. It wasn't, but it appeared in pristine condition where it was toasted all around it. So it's like a photographic mask. How do you get something burnt right up to an abrupt line where one nanometer over, it's in pristine condition? Fires do not do that. And that's what it started reminding me of, like, optical interference, where you can have one field or the other and nothing happens except where they interfere. And that's where, where you get, uh, you know, exponential kind of strengthening of a signal or cancellation. And so, uh, yeah, there's there was at least fourteen hundred toasted cars all around Manhattan.
0: Why wasn't that part of the evidence in terms of the public mind? That's a strange enough anomaly to have been worthy of covering it on the news.
1: They put ask too many questions. I don't know. You'd have to ask the news reporters. There, there was a report that night. See, the initial news reports were they, they were in a tailspin. they didn't know what was going on either. I've got a video of uh, Diane Sawyer interviewing a volunteer who was talking about that the, the cars are all melted and twisted in weird ways, and there's not really any fires. You know he, he was just having trouble explaining all this weirdness, like the, the, the tour bus that's you know toasted. And it was just right in the middle of the street. This car is just like right in the middle of the street. You know, the door is open. There's another pattern I noticed is particular materials are affected differently. The door latches and door handles, you know, trunk latches seem to give way. You had a lot of popped open trunk lids and, and popped open doors that, that seemed to release. Um, there's something about that, that material. I, I don't need to, to say what that difference is. I'm just noting there's a difference. You know, the debunkers like say, "Oh, doesn't she know that they're made out of plastic and blah blah blah." Well, still, why is this affected and something else isn't? Like, you know, there's the seat belt inside this car is in pristine condition. The the plastic molding around the windows in pristine condition. But all around the the window trim is just toast. You know, the, the of the metal part. Different metals, so its different materials are affected differently, which Implies a different kind of energy field than just heat.
0: Even seven blocks away, I mean, seven blocks away from the event, and these cars are all toasted. I mean, it's bizarre.
1: Right? Yeah. Some of the debunkers like say, "Oh, they were towed." Well, still, they're they're toasted. But we also do have, you know, that may be towed, may not be towed. I don't have evidence uh, either way of those cars that are over on FDR Drive. But I do have an eyewitness. Who saw a car go into spontaneous combustion over on FDR Drive? And he he was trying to rationalize it, you know, figure out what he how he could explain it. And he decided a fireball must have gotten loose from the World Trade Center and come down there and hit the car. <laughs> because why else would it go into spontaneous combustion? <laughs> yeah, they do the best they can
0: let's talk about the windows that were hollowed out at the bankers trust building where Deutsche Bank was what is that about
1: oh was it was not just uh, there it's uh, it's even in um, one Liberty Plaza and the uh, century 21 building uh, that you know they had these cylindrical cutouts in the holes in the windows or circular cutouts now I, you know one of my um, uh, Submissions in the court case was I call it the what about the children section. You know, here, here's here's a high school kid teacher teacher uh in physics class. Can you explain why I get how, how to get those round holes in those windows when I throw a baseball through the window? It doesn't do that. It makes a spider web pattern. So teacher, can you explain how you get those round holes in the window? <laughs> you know, what what would a teacher say? Um. And that, that's that's an issue. You know, you have so, these round holes without cracks going out to the edges. How do you throw a ball or a rock and do that? You can't because how a rock breaks a window, it bends the glass. And, and uh, brittle material has a very low tensile strength. You know, it's good in compression but poor in tension. And if you – the rock, when it first – contacts the window, it bends the window, and that outer surface of the bend is in tension. And that's where it breaks, and then it propagates. It doesn't just make a round hole around the the rock.
0: Now, weren't also these windows where these round holes were, they weren't just at the buildings that collapsed, they were blocks away too.
1: Yeah, across adjacent buildings. And the the buildings did not have the appearance of shrapnel hitting them. You know, It didn't look like they were machine gun fired. There was just these round holes. And those can be reproduced in the lab through longitudinal waves energy waves and and causing some kind of disruption that does this, but that is another issue getting back to the uh, pancaking if you pancake let's say you you know ignore everything else and say you can pancake buildings down in eight seconds you, you you know accordion this building down well the stuff that's in the middle has got to squirt out somewhere, and if you pancake this building down in eight seconds, that means. You know, the the stuff inside has to be squirting out at greater than Mach 2 by the time it gets near ground level.
0: And what does that mean?
1: If the buildings had indeed pancaked down. Right. Instead of turned to dust, that material has to squirt out of the way because it's not left at the bottom. So what are they saying? You know, it shot out sideways. If it shot out sideways, the speed at which it would need to shoot out is around Mach 2.
0: But obviously that didn't happen.
1: Right, right because you then have all the adjacent buildings would look like they're machine gun fired. And, and they, they aren't, you do have these round holes, but you don't have other damage to the facade, apparent damage to the facade. And like the, in the case of, uh, building seven, right across the street from building seven is the post office. The building didn't even spill across the street. A 47 story building didn't completely cover the sidewalk. And the, the edge of that uh, post office, that face right across the street, does not look like machine gun fire. I mean, I've been there personally and examined it. It's pretty outstanding. So how are you going to, you know, according this thing to the ground, this 47-story building, squash it down to the ground without squirting stuff out sideways? You know, bombs with squirt stuff out sideways. And when they do controlled demolitions, they prepare a building and they remove anything that's not nailed down, and anything that is nailed down, you know, uh, removable walls, and they just leave, a, you know, the 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 whole thing gutted out, and just the the outer core is all that's left. But these buildings were not prepared for that. There was stuff in them. It, a coke can on the windowsill is going to be a projectile. You know, it's going to decapitate somebody. <laughs> you know, the the stuff that would be shooting out if you were exploding the building from within. But if you're turning a building into dust. Within, it doesn't do that.
0: Two towers, one fourth mile tall, made of 500 tons of material, gone in eight to 10 seconds.
1: Each 500,000 tons.
0: They're each 500,000 tons? Yep,
1: a million tons for the two towers.
0: My question to you is, when you talk about dustification, you gave this example in the book and you said the Twin Towers had 30,000 computers for about 50,000 workers. So 45,000 file cabinets would not be unreasonable to consider. There were 200 complete bodies recovered of the 3,000 victims, approximately a one-fifth ratio. You said you would expect to find 3,000 filing cabinets out of 45,000 to be intact. Only one survived. So what do you make of that?
1: Um, they're dustified. the others. Uh, toilets is, you know, uh, my favorite one because toilets are something you can recognize, you know, pieces of. They're recognized in a rubble pile. If you see it where a tornado struck something, you, you see the toilets left.
0: Okay, let's talk about those toilets.
1: But if they're ceramic, and I assume that they're ceramic, even if they're, you know, metal ones up above, you still don't see them. Building code requires X number of toilets per floor. You should have about 3,000 toilets at least in that complex. And you don't see a one or a piece of one. That's pretty peculiar. Just just like what, um, what Jay Jonas had said, he didn't see one desk, one chair, one phone, nothing. And there's another one of those, those folks who were, came out of stairwell B who said they, it seemed like they had come out onto an empty football field.
0: So there was ash and dust everywhere, particulate matter in people's throats and eyes, burnt vehicles, fireballs, smoke and debris, dust everywhere. And there's no account of computers, of phones, filing cabinets, except for one. It's too big to imagine.
1: Yeah, how, how, do you, how do you disappear that much material? And, and there's a uh, a guy who is walking through, um, a firefighter with his group, walking through the lobby of Building 6. That's adjacent to, to Tower 1. Right. They're in the middle of it, and everything went black. The lights went out. And next thing he knew, he was looking up at blue sky from the lobby. You know, it's a six, uh, I mean, sorry, it's an eight-story building. So he's, he's, there's a big hole in the middle. His buddies he knew were gone. They're right next to him, but he was just right at the very edge of where that section was cored out from, right down to ground level. It didn't go below ground, and you can see from pictures in the inside of that, that hole in Building Six. You can count the floors: one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Yep, it's an eight-story building, so you know you're at ground level. And there are um, uh, PATH trains at the PATH train station, which is the subway that goes under the Hudson River over to New Jersey, that were hoisted out of there you know, in February when they they got down to that level intact. There's even a picture of one like right afterwards. You know, that the FEMA folks go around, and make those red X's and count bodies and right. put them on the symbols. Uh, there's a picture of that with, you know, a bunch of water around from all the fire hoses from the PATH train station. The PATH train station did not get squashed. So it didn't go below ground.
0: There's a New York Police Department person named Tim McGinn. I want to read to you on page 180 of your book. He says... I was standing there for a couple of seconds thinking, where the F is the tower? I simply couldn't comprehend it. Literally how it just disappeared. It's stunning.
1: Page 179, the bottom of it. This was right after Tower 1 went away. That was the second of the tower. For the listeners who aren't familiar, Tower 1 got an airplane shape hole in it. Then Tower 2 got an airplane shape hole in it. Then Tower 2 went poof. And then Tower 1 went poof. So they, they poofed in reverse order. And so right after Tower 1 went away, so there's no towers left standing, these people come out of their hiding places, and they look like they they just entered the twilight zone. You can see from their body language, the, the, their jaws are probably hanging open, because there's supposed to be a tower right there, and they don't even see any chunks of steel on the ground in front of them. There's some pieces of the aluminum cladding that were on the outside of the building, but you don't see any chunks of steel here. And... Just before then, there's a video of chunks of steel falling down to that intersection. It's on the left-hand page, frames from it. Right. But obviously, it turned to dust before it hit the ground because it isn't there. Now, these these people are with their hands at their sides, arms folded, hands on the hips. They they just they look bewildered like – they're all staring at where the building had been standing
0: now what are these big gaping holes on page 175 in WTC 6 this big hole that looks like something was blown right through the center of it
1: it's uh, a bunch of uh, it looks like cylindrical cutouts that coalesced and that's the edge of where that that uh, first responder was standing when you know when things went black you know no right. light and then the dust cleared he looked up and saw a blue sky he was right at the edge of that, and if you know a few feet over, he would have been a goner. And he had, you know, the survivors guilt. You know, the next day when he came back to show his his uh, his boss, you know, it's like they they just could not believe it. But it looks like there's these cylindrical cutouts. Now, one would be tempted to say, okay, something from above, you know, zapped it out. That's that's a temptation. We don't have any evidence of that. But in studying this further, I found evidence that there seems to be this phenomenon that goes along a straight line. Just picture in your mind a straight line through space, and then everything at a radial distance out of that line is destroyed, you know, turned to dust. That seems familiar with, with that, as well as the holes in the street. If you just have some kind of weird effect that, for some reason, is in that line, along that line, and these, all these uh, cylindrical cutouts were about 24 feet in diameter as scaled by the, the spacing on the wheat checks. The wheat checks is the term I, I give it. It actually it comes from a, um, a photographer. They, they were calling them wheat checks. The, the building was built out of the outer faces, prefab units of three columns wide and three stories tall. And they had spandrel belts across them at every floor, holding them together. So these three, three by three uh, units, it, they look like the wheat check cereals or, Shreddies if you're in England.
0: You know, these buildings were built to be able to withstand airplane crashes into them. They literally were designed to be able to absorb this type of a scenario. How is it possible that physicists and engineers and architects, many of them, there's a consensus that the reason these buildings took the form and shape that they did after this terrible event is because there was fire that weakened the cylinders and that's how they collapsed. Why are they saying this?
1: Because they've been told to say it and it's not their job to look into it. And if they looked in, stuck their nose into somebody else's job, their nose might get cut off. You know, it's You do what you're told. I don't know. Fear? There there uh, have been engineers who uh, who started standing up for my work because they, they have integrity. But they, they need to be careful because what's the retaliation? What's the flip side of this?
0: They lose their job or their yeah, life. Lo-
1: right. Right. So um, people are afraid to do that. And I, I guess when I started realizing that, you know, on day one, I knew that the, the buildings turned to dust and that nobody was looking into it. But. I assumed the grown-ups were going to take care of it, you know, whoever was whose job it was to take care of it. But it became apparent to me in 2004 that they weren't going to take care of it. Whose job was it to take care of it, to deal with it? And so I felt it was my responsibility. And being the position I was in life, you know, single, without family, I could afford to take this risk where others who have a family could not. And so I felt more responsible to do it
0: you're very brave you're still brave to have published what you did and to take a stand for this the thing is that you know most of the population does not know about nikola tesla they're still enamored with einstein but maybe you could talk a little bit about nikola tesla and what he invented in the way of free energy
1: well first of all why why you know the name of this is on my book it's you know the technology that we see that was used you know, somebody says, "Well, such technology doesn't exist." Well, I've got a, a kind of a, a pop quiz I give for that. First thing is, were there ever any buildings there? Yes. Are they still there? No. So something made them go away. Did uh, at least fifty? This not even uh, split hairs here. Did at least fifty percent of the buildings turn to turn to dust? Yes. If 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 they say no, you say well go find somebody who can observe the uh, empirical evidence of it better help help you with that. But uh, okay, right? Yes, they did. Okay, uh, does there exist a technology that can do this? If you say no, then I'll say well please explain the uh, the contradiction of how something happened that is impossible to have happened. The the only answer you can come up with that's logical is yes, there's a technology that can do this. So buildings turn into powder in midair. The fact that we have established, first of all, you have to establish what happened. The fact that you established what happened proves to us that there's something that can do it that exists. So if you start out with any, meeny, mighty, mo, you know, thermite, firecrackers, uh, slingshots, BB guns, w- whatever is in your known repertoire, and pick from that, you're not going to get there. You have to start out with what happened. What happened? The building turned to dust, mostly. You know, I'm not going to say uh, 100% of it, but a significant amount of the building turned to dust in midair. Therefore, we know that such a technology exists. And once you know that such a technology like that exists, then you can think of what else that technology is capable of doing. It's capable of providing us with free energy. And, you know, the, the bright side of this, if there's any silver lining in this horrible cloud, is to realize that, that uh, you know, up until now, people are been in their basements and the secrecy of their basements developing free energy technology, and then they get suicided. But the cover on the, on my book, that picture of the, the towers dustifying, what this says is that everybody in the world is able to realize that tech, that free energy technology exists. Undeniably.
0: But in this particular case, this is the manifestation of free energy technology that's been weaponized. It's a little different, yeah?
1: Right, right, but it proves that the technology exists. And that should allow everyone to develop free energy technology in the light of day.
0: But if 99.9% of the public doesn't A, accept it, and B, doesn't understand it, the existing scientific method doesn't teach it, right?
1: The existing, uh, you know, teaching method of teaching, not critical thinking, but non-critical, whatever you want to call it, of, you know, memorizing cue cards... Of uh, starting out with, you know, multiple choice, picking from multiple choice of answers, it keeps people from thinking. It keeps people stuck so they can't think their way out. They can't explore and develop and progress.
0: Dr. Wood, this technology is obviously classified. Okay, let's just suppose that it's classified because I would bet a lot of. Oh, it
1: has to be. It's not in the public domain because we don't you know, it's not common knowledge.
0: Right. So, it's obviously classified. And that's another reason that it would not necessarily be part of the solving of the puzzle of what happened, is because it's not just free energy technology, it's classified technology.
1: Right. But we have a way of understanding it. Every person can understand it themselves. And that's in the later chapters of the book where I bring about some other events. For example, Spring bring this on your your audience. Uh, Do they realize that there was a Category 3 hurricane right outside of New York City on
0: 9-11? I don't think most people know that. I certainly didn't know that except the first time you told me that.
1: And then you think of, well, it's for four days in a row, it was aimed, you know, straight for land. And it wasn't, it was just going over the ocean. So it's not going to get weaker. So uh, why aren't they warning the people to start evacuating Manhattan, a voluntary evacuation at least? And last fall, you remember Hurricane Irene, they evacuated Manhattan, and that thing was going over over land, and it was a Category 1. and It was going to get busted up over land before it even hit New York. Yeah, it was going to rain a lot, but it, it, you know, it wasn't anything like the threat of a Category 3 hurricane aimed straight for Manhattan. Uh, they thought it was going to turn around day one in the in – the, um, weather uh updates you know that they send to to station you know the text updates uh then well it didn't okay next uh prediction period or forecast period next day it's going to turn around today nope didn't day three it's going to turn around today nope didn't day four it's going to turn around today good thing it did there was no more leeway <laughs> yeah how how could they be so sure as they wouldn't have to even alert the public that becomes a big question. If that hurricane had stayed there even a few hours longer, Manhattan could have been flooded from storm surges. As it was, they were talking about closing the beaches on um, the Atlantic Beach because of the undertow. And, you know, JFK Airport would have been flooded. It's right at sea level. Manhattan is at sea level. No way could you evacuate. If you were wrong with this forecast, no way could you evacuate you know, the millions of people in Manhattan in that amount of time. In one hour or two hours? That's why you give, give uh, you know, um, optional evacuation orders before you need to make them mandatory to give other people a head start to stagger it out. So once realizing that, it get, gets me questioning. Why would, you know, it, it makes it suspicious why the hurricane's there. What do hurricanes do? They produce a static field. Birds ahead of, of when the hurricane gets there know to skip town. Because they sense the storm coming, people with arthritis often talk about feeling a storm coming.
0: Right. My mom used to every time there was a storm. So right ahead
1: of a of a storm, there's a static field. Well, it turns out, you know, was it close enough to Manhattan? On 9/ 11, the three major airports surrounding Manhattan reported is yes, JFK, LaGuardia and Newark all reported thunder on 9/11. People think it as a nice clear day. I think that's a pretty good example that there's electrical field there, and it was pretty much a, a constant field too. If you look at the other data there, okay. So we have we do have you know a static field here. What else do hurricanes do? And you start looking around at this is natural weather events, and you see you may, you, you remember seeing pictures of cars on telephone poles? Sure. From tornadoes or whatnot, you, you assume that it's sucked up there and dropped there or blown up there, but the car didn 't have a scratch on it and there's other interesting weather phenomena that you start seeing that are are very much in common with this there 's another phenomenon that we don't we aren 't taught that exists, and it turns out gravity, electricity, and magnetism are all interrelated Now you go back to nine eleven and people were levitated you know it, the, the plot thickens. And you think about what Tesla did develop—you know, the the hydroelectric power plant. You move a conductor through a magnetic field, and voila, you get electricity. To anyone at that time, they would they would think that was magic, wouldn't they? Absolutely. Because now we're taught that, so it's not magic. If you understand, it, it's not magic. Also, you can—I um, uh, think you know—from Boy Scouts or or Cub Scouts, wrap a wire around a nail and uh, plug the, the wires into, you know, coil it around it, and plug them into a 9-volt battery, and that nail becomes a magnet. So we can turn electricity into magnetism. We can turn magnetism into electricity. Also, there's some studies done, Boyd Bushman is the one who's done it, that you get, you know, something like a, a, a rock, you get a bunch of them, so they're all the same. And then inside, you have a little cavity where you insert magnets Put the, stack the magnets so that they like each other in one, and then stack them so they don't like each other in another one. And then the third one, used as a control, have the same weight but not magnetic. Drop those off of a big building again and again. And, you know, they should, you would think they would hit the ground at the same time, but they don't. The one where the magnets are fighting each other take longer to hit the ground. The ones where the magnets like each other are faster than the control. So in other words, this magnetism affects gravity. And if electricity affects magnetism, here we have all three of them interacting. And then we have someone who can demonstrate it right before your very eyes. And I went to visit that person. And it turns out what they do is use a static field. They produce a static field with a Van de Graaff generator. They used to use a uh, Tesla coil. But produce a static field, and within that static field, <clears throat> interfere radio frequency signals like microwave. And voila, the same effects that we saw in 9-11 can be reproduced. So we have a proof of concept demonstration on a much smaller scale, of course, but, you know, the same kind of components. You know, I can't say that I know who did it unless I was in the same room when, when the button was pushed you know, or side of design, but I can reproduce it, you know, on a small scale. And, and um, you know, various things. So if you look at the evidence, the evidence tells you what you need to know. If you go through this evidence, you can also discard things like, um, you know, bombs. The seismic signal does not reflect bombs going off. Uh, oh, also another thing about the seismic signal, those buildings were on bedrock. If you slam these buildings to bedrock – and the seismic stations at the other end of that bedrock, shouldn't it pick it up? Absolutely. It did not. It did not pick up the signal that traveled through the Earth, the S wave and P wave. You know, when the, you have an earthquake, the P wave, primary wave, is the first to hit the seismic station. Then there's the secondary wave hits the seismic station. And the the timing between those two arrival times tells you how far away the epicenter is because those signals travel At different speeds for both towers and for building seven, you know, for for none of the World Trade Center buildings was there recorded S wave and P wave. Only surface waves.
0: What does that mean to
1: you? Well, if it didn't travel through the earth, they only got a surface wave. So imagine, you know, those buildings went missing. If you had King Kong reach over with long arms and pick up those buildings and chuck them out into space, he's taken the weight off the ground. You know, if if this weight has, that used to be sitting there, these two 500,000-ton build, buildings are no longer sitting there, but they suddenly were removed, that's going to create a surface wave as the ground recovers, kind of. But if you drop something and slam it to the bedrock, it's got to record an S-wave and a P-wave. That didn't happen, so it could not have slammed to the ground. The buildings did not slam to the ground. They turned into dust in midair.
0: It's staggering.
1: And Building 7, which, you know, the the, the uh, bombs people like to say it looks like, well, you know, just because it looks like it doesn't mean it is. And I, I like to cite uh, uh, magic shows, you know, look like that magician cut that woman in half, but here she is back together again. Just because it looks like it doesn't mean it is.
0: Correct me if I'm incorrect here, but if I remember, and again, it's from a long time ago, wasn't that the one that Larry Silverstein said, pull it?
1: That's what was played up, but, you know, it's, it's another, I call that an um, Easter egg. You know, like a, child, a three-year-old child's Easter egg hunt. You know, the Easter eggs are laid right out there for you to find. Yeah. And then and when the child finds it, he, he thinks he really has something, a treasure, and then hangs on to it. There's a whole lot of these Easter eggs that were set out there to get people to follow. But if you think about the actual logic of it, now here's this guy admitting, you know, Something on national TV, no, he would be admitting something like that that would hang him, but also he said you know supposedly for on that day to to pull it to the firefighters, well, if that was to mean controlled demolition, do these firefighters go around with sticks of dynamite in their back pockets just in case they can't control the fire? They're not in the, the business of controlled demolition. You'd have to assess what damage the fire has caused before you could know where you need to wire something up.
0: Just in my own observation, unlike the North and South Towers, Building 7 did look like it pancaked down. It didn't look like it dustified.
1: You have to look at it very carefully. Okay, the the Building 7, for about seven hours, was, you know, fuming away from ground to roof, one side and one side only, except towards the end, it was two sides, but not around the corner. That was bizarre. It was just one side and one side only. Heavy, heavy, heavy uh, fuming like you know, Alka-Seltzer. The whole building was an Alka-Seltzer tablet. <laughs> Where did that material come from? That's a lot of material. If in just 10 seconds or 5 seconds or whatnot, the material from, from the north and south tower was dustifying on the way down before it hit the ground, then you know what's happening with all of the innards of Building 7 dustifying all afternoon So that there was only an outer shell that remained.
0: But it was forensically different the way it looked. That's all I'm saying.
1: Right. And then we were led to believe it was controlled demolition very early on. And I I sensed that quite quickly. You know, it was all this direction. You know, on that afternoon, Dan Rather said, and it looks like, you know, all the controlled demolitions we've seen or something like that. Looks like the, you know, ones we've seen all too many times. Uh, and I, I was going to write after I wrote the the first um, article with with Morgan Reynolds about the, the you know the first of the do series. Before then, right when in the middle of that, the next one I had in line was Building Seven and the Easter Egg Hunt. <laughs> that was the title I had set out. And of course, this other thing just got bigger and bigger and unfolded, and never got back to that. But, but Building Seven was set out there as an Easter Egg, and we were encouraged from the beginning to assume that was a controlled demolition because once you focus on that, you aren't focusing on what happened to the towers and then focusing on that, you're going to assume that's what happened to the towers. You know, so it was, we kept being directed to do that, but it wasn't really like a regular controlled demolition in that it didn't even spill across the street and also made no sound to speak of. There's a, a video of somebody being interviewed where the, the camera is aimed building seven is behind the person being interviewed and the camera person partway through you, you see the building seven starts to just drop behind the person. The person speaking has no idea. And, and the camera person with the buildings like halfway down says, Whoa, 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 Whoa. <laughs> he just gets it worked up, but you don't hear anything else. You don't hear the building going crash thuddy, you know, bumpity crunch. If you have a truck, heavy truck driving down the street near your house, you feel it. You hear it.
0: Wait, you gave an analogy that I loved. You said one of the buildings was like having ten to 14,000 dump trucks fall down or something.
1: Right. It should be like raining dump trucks.
0: Yeah. If the
1: building is collapsing a block away, shouldn't you hear, a, you know, yeah, like it was raining dump trucks, but it was silent. How can that be? That is not a regular controlled demolition. And if you look actually at some some of the images, uh, you see the building just dustifying on the way down. But you're not directed to look at that normally.
0: Talk for a moment again about Nikola Tesla and what he produced.
1: Uh, He had, you know, umpteen odd patents. I don't don't have them all counted up. Um, Tremendous amount of work he he had done and, and just really... Advancing, he's, he's very much the father of the, the technology era. Without what he did, nothing else could have, could have gone the way it did. Uh, you know, bringing about um, electricity from Niagara Falls you know, and hydroelectric power plants, alternating current. His competitor wanted direct, uh, you know, DC current. What's so funny is that it's kind of ironic. We we hear about Edison in our textbooks. And then we have Con Edison, Toledo Edison, uh, Southern California Edison. But they're selling alternating current, which was Tesla's creation or, you know, discovery.
0: Which, you know, why don't
1: we hear about Tesla?
0: Because he had more than Edison and he had more than Einstein.
1: Yeah, not just that. It, he held back a lot, too. And i There is one uh, interesting document that was declassified a bit ago where I think it was in nineteen twenty six or thirty six or thirty two somewhere in there he had uh proposed to Congress that if they ins- um built a tower every two hundred miles around the perimeter of, the, of this of his country here's a word about security he said he would install at the on the top of each one of those towers a gizmo. It would create a wall, uh, you know, of an energy field through which any airplane tried, that tried to pass would be, quote, dematerialized. That that word stuck in my mind. You know, creating an an energy field that if an airplane tried to pass through it, it would be dematerialized. So he had envisioned that even at that time. Still, you know, this kind of the thing. Weirds people out. Oh, but you don't have any evidence, and blah blah blah. You know, they they want to to get the um, the serial number for it to be able, be able to back match it. But if you start out again at the beginning, did the buildings turn to dust? Yes, they did. Well, then you have something there that can cause this. Now let's see what kind of phenomenon it takes. You don't need to to know a particular um, serial number or technology in order to look at phenomena. And looking at weather patterns and weather systems is, I think, a pretty good indication that it's a natural phenomenon that has just been weaponized. You know, looking at what, what you, you've seen, straw through trees. You know, the thing with hurricanes or tornadoes.
0: I've never been around them in my life.
1: Um, they, there's pictures of, of straw through trees, and people say, "Oh, that's because the straw is flying so fast it sticks in the tree." Now, that, that makes no sense from traditional mechanics perspective because Newton's third law says that equal to opposite forces. So the tree is much stronger. The, tra- the, the straw has no, uh, you know, you can't do battle with the tree. But uh, as an analogy I give, if you can create, you know, change the environment such that uh, the molecules are like playing musical chairs, mm-hmm. and the music's playing, they're up and moving around. And when the music stops, they have to sit back down. And sometimes they don't quite get back in the right seat, and there's something, you know, missing on the sur- or the surface. But while they're up, while the music's still playing, let's say, in a tree, along comes a piece of straw flying through the air, and just as it sticks into the tree, the music stops playing, and the- and everything sits back down. That piece of straw is stuck in that tree, and we see that. Same kind of thing with World Trade Center. You see things that are, appear to be fused together. A stack of paper fused with, you know, it looks like it's melted together with with steel and concrete. But it couldn't be melted because paper doesn't melt. Paper burns and it would be gone if it's that hot. And you see this glop of, of coins. Now the coins, you can still read which coin is which. And a penny uh, you know, is copper coated zinc nowadays? You know, the, the right. cheaper, cheap inversion. version. Um, zinc melts before copper does. Not only that, zinc boils before copper melts. So, if it was, if this was done with heat, you know, the penny would have exploded. It would have, um, and, and you see uh, dimes, you see all sorts of other coins in there. So that cannot be conventional heat melting that glop together. And we go back to that person who can demonstrate all these same phenomena, John Hutchison. And he ended up accidentally one day, he used for his target platform a piece of plywood. And he had aluminum on it. And the aluminum fused with the plywood. Somebody sliced it down. And you can see there's wood embedded in aluminum. Well, if aluminum is hot enough to melt, it would have burned the wood. So how do you get aluminum encapsulating wood. <laughs> it's, this, it's a strange kind of thing where materials reshape without high heat. Other characteristics of this is luminescence without high heat. Now, hot things glow, but not everything that glows is hot. Say that again, hot things do glow, but not everything that glows is hot. Let's compare an incandescent Light with a fluorescent light, they both glow. One does it because it's hot. The tungsten filament is is hot enough to glow, and the other one is a type of plasma in it. And it you, you could unscrew a, a fluorescent light without burning your hands. You you can't do that with a an incandescent light. Well, they're, they've been on for a while, and you start looking at what appeared to be fires where paper didn't burn. You know, the World Trade Center, and you realize there, there are phenomena that you have seen before that just not in this context. So it isn't like believing something you've never seen. It's applying what you do know in a new situation by, by elimination, too. You know, for example, this, something that's glowing, that's sitting on a piece of paper, it can't be glowing because it's hot. That takes over a 1,000 degrees centigrade. The paper would have been burned up by then, so it's it's you know if the paper's not burning, it's not hot. Also, if you remember, with the these big uh, dust clouds that rolled down the street, chased people and then overtook them and just left people covered with dust, it did not burn people. Uh, one of the uh, first responders I spoke with said at first it was cooler to the touch than ambient temperature. The the dust cloud. And then there was something in it where it was itchy. It's kind of like you know you pour acid on your hand and it burns, right. but it's not because it, it's thermally hot. It's, it's like it eats on your hand, but it, it was cold initially, and that doesn't match with uh, you know, even if it's, if the dust cloud is from things breaking apart, breaking apart is friction, you know grinding apart, pulverizing, it would make it, it would raise the temperature. If it's bombs, it's heat. If it's thermite, it'd be heat. This did not involve high heat. So it's so important just to start out with, and and people are, this is so foreign to most people to just look at the evidence and see what the evidence says. You don't need to have an endpoint. You don't need to know exactly what serial numbers were, who did it, and anything else to just understand what happened. Once you see what happened and begin putting the pieces together, you can see it's something you've never seen before. Unless you're, uh, you know, high security level someplace that we're not talking about those.
0: Right. But, you know, it's more than seeing the evidence, because what you're training us to do is to identify the evidence, to ask questions in new ways, to suspend our need to know and to have quick answers and this continual rigorous process of looking. But it's also looking at the evidence that's there in a totally different way.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Uh, the best compliment I've gotten about my book is folks who have said it's it's a course in critical thinking.
0: Definitely. So let us assume that 20 percent of the population of the United States reads your book. Now what?
1: If uh, I've I've often thought of that, like if overnight half the world's population or even 20 percent of the world's population read it, the world would change instantly. How would it change? We don't know. But The controlling parties would have a problem. Right now, it's manageable one by one and group by group. And if they can manage groups and people tend to get hung up in group think and don't want to wander outside the box, that keeps it manageable. But if suddenly everyone did understand this, did read my book overnight, the world would be an entirely different place. It's one way of sort of overthrowing the controlling
0: in a way, but see, it's kind of like knowing that something exists and is available, but we didn't know it before. But the knowledge and the confirmation is one thing that would be... It's with, in,
1: it, But it's empowering.
0: Yeah. No, it's very empowering. The thing is, it's still going to be obtuse in the minds and in the lives of the people that get it. Mm, but but if
1: once you read this, yeah. you realize as a as a friend of mine says once you realize you've been lied about one thing you start wondering about other things you've been lied about and the control over you is kind of evaporated somewhat i get it it's not so much the exact details of 911 but it's what 911 did was put a hold over everyone it was it was a, a an ace card that they were playing whenever they you know why does the sun come up in the morning? Because of 9-11. Why can't you go to the beach today? Because of 9-11. Everything 9-11 is 9-11 is the answer for everything now. And it it undoes that. It disempowers that. Without that power, uh, the uh, controlling body has to do something else.
0: Which is even more scary to think of what else might be done. But they're going to do it anyway. They've
1: been, you can see, the, look at the progression since 9-11 that they've been working on. They're trying to step it up faster, but they can only step it up so fast before it just falls apart, becomes too obvious.
0: Well, first of all, this is so comprehensive. We could talk about what the powers that be have in mind and how things are being stepped up and how life has changed. But I don't know that it'll really help us, will it? No,
1: no, it won't. And and that also, you know, inserts speculation and so forth. But just think of what we do know and what we can see. What we can see is the effect this has had on us. And also from reading this book, you can understand the kind of psychological control over us because we do not have good problem-solving skills.
0: That's so powerful. It's actually the forensics of 9-11 is a very instructive event, isn't it? Exactly. As horrible as it was.
1: And you learn to sort your way through other things. Like you hear about this uh, shooting in, in Aurora, Colorado. Right. How I interpret that is somebody's doing something somewhere, and it probably happened today. That's all you know. What? You don't really know. And it you, you can guarantee it's going to be you know something is, is going on somewhere about something. Right. But beyond that, you don't know. And there are victims. Right. I, I don't deny there are victims. And I do know about other similar events, right. like the one at Virginia Tech. You know, there's there's um, and you can look at what effect these things cause and look look at the pattern of these events. But if you just resist more, the biggest thing I can I can say is is resist the temptation to jump to the answer, because once you grab onto an answer, you're not going to want to let go of it and you're going to misinterpret data in order to fit your answer that you've established. So. Hold off on the answer as much as you can until the answer reveals itself because the data will reveal itself and you can keep looking until you know like there's there's a couple of um well there were several images that I knew were important I just didn't know why right and I wouldn't force them I just put them aside until they sort of spoke to me until it was You know, their turn kind of and and I had understood enough about other things to see what the message was. And one of them was the the guy taking his pants off. And there's still several other one was the um, the building with the the bite in it. Yeah, that one hit me. And finally, I realized what it was is Bill Biggert. That was his last picture. So Bill Biggert's last two pictures were very similar. I don't know which exactly was the last one, but it's one. Of, they looked the same. So the one with the bite out of Building 3 and as he died right after that. When Tower 1 went poof, he died with that. Between Tower 2 going poof and Tower 1 going poof, he took this picture of Building 3 where the middle section, about half of it was just a big bite taken out of it. You didn't see the rubble on the ground. You just saw this bite missing out of the building. I knew that picture was important, but at first I couldn't. Figure out why. And what it's important to do is to not force why. It's important not to say, guess why and then go on from there like you do with multiple choice tests. But let it come to you. And then it did, which Bill Bigger, when he heard something was going on down there, started walking and making his way down to Manhattan. You could see from the pictures that were left on his camera. He was taking a picture of a, a wino in an alley and a dog and something. You could see the path he took. And all right. of his pictures are about people. How right. are people are feeling? What they're, how how they're reacting to this? They're all about people. Right. This last picture was about a building, no people. I don't think he's taken other pictures of stuff. It's always been, you know, the story about the people. He saw something there, and and that caused him to want to record that. Right. And that that was uh, that really hit me. And I I thank his family so much for making. Those pictures available too, so that people could see that. And it, it really struck stuck out.
0: How do people reach you now? Do they go to Where Did the Towers Go? For, for the
1: book, it's at Where Did The Towers Go dot com. It's hard to type because it's all one word. No spaces. Where did the Towers Go Right dot com. And you can also contact me through my website, which is drjudywood.com. That's Dr. Judy. Wood, all four letters, uh, you know, four letters and four letters, no spaces, just drjudywood.com. And up by my picture in the top right-hand corner, there's my email address and also a bio. Uh, there's also links to go to the book website from there if you want to do it that way. And on the book website, where the towers there's a menu at the top. On the far end, there's a, a video series just for convenience for people. Where there's a set of videos for each chapter of the book. So if you want to see a video, you know, of, I, I think I even have the uh, Falling Man video in there, as well as uh, some things for chapter four on the psychology, showing um, the ash conformity experiment, where somebody, uh, you know, the, the rest of them are not test subjects, but this, the one test subject thinks that they are, and they're going around the circle. Saying which is the right answer, and the rest of the people give a wrong answer, and then the the test subject gives a wrong answer because of the need to conform. Either he doubts his own judgment, or he doesn't want to to be an outlier. He wants to be with the crowd. That that um, conformity uh, urge of groupthink is is a mighty powerful tool. So when you're, I like what um, Mark Twain said. When you find yourself in the majority, it's time to pause and reflect.
0: I really want to thank you, Dr. Judy Wood, for all of the years of grueling work and analysis and patience and courage to do what you're doing and to step forward with what you've stepped forward with. It is definitely not on the main track where people are being gravitated to. Thank you so much for who you are and what you're doing. And ladies and gentlemen, pick up Where Did the Towers Go? Evidence of Directed Free Energy Technology on 9-11 by Dr. Judy Wood. Thank you so much, Judy.
1: Thank you so much for having me and for wanting to get this information out there.